Hello and welcome to Catholic in America. I'm Father Michael Nixon. Thanks so much for joining us. Today we're very blessed to be joined with a Zoom episode uh, with Tim Staples, who is a Catholic apologist coming to us all the way over from California. And uh, he works with Catholic Answers, who does an awesome, they do an awesome job of sharing the faith and answering uh, questions uh, about Catholicism, about other denominations and Christianity, about Jesus, and uh, sharing the, the gospel uh, with a lot of people. So it's really excited for, uh, to be joined by you today, Tim. Uh, it's great to be with you, Father. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So just, just to get us started us off, maybe you can give a little bit of your background. You probably weren't born yeah. a, Catholic, a Catholic apologist. Um, they're probably oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement. I, I was uh, born and raised a Southern Baptist and uh, from a, a family that was very loving in a church community that was very loving and brought me to Jesus when I was 10 years old. I'm so grateful to God for that little Southern Baptist community in Falls Church, Virginia, Boulevard Baptist Church. Um, never forget them and they just mean the world to me. But I got away from my faith in my teen years, unfortunately. Came back to our Lord through televangelists like mm -hmm. Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker. Some of the younger crowd don't know who those folks are, but they were a couple of Assembly of God evangelists, and, and they really grabbed a hold of me. And that's really what led me to come back to Christ and in the Assemblies of God. And so I came back as a member of the Assemblies of God, gave my heart back to Jesus and had a desire to be a minister. In fact, I had had a desire when I was eight, nine, 10 years old in the Baptist community to, to be a minister. And that seemed to come back uh, when I came back to faith in the Assemblies. But again, uh, just a wonderful community there, you know, People often ask me, you know, Tim, you don't have anything negative to say about your, your Protestant upbringing. And, it, and it's true, not much, because it was just a wonderful experience. I mean, these people love Jesus. and But what happened to me, Father, is I went into the United States Marine Corps. And my goal was to, to go through those four years and then exit the Marine Corps and go into full-time ministry. That was my goal. And in fact, it ended up happening. When I got out of the Corps, I did go into full-time ministry as a youth minister in the Assemblies of God. But before I got out of the Marines, I ran into a Catholic hmm. who was not just your average Catholic, because I had met lots of them that didn't know their faith. In fact, I led Catholics out of the church, unfortunately. I'm trying to find them all to bring them back in. <laughs> but when I met Sergeant Dula, he was the first Catholic I'd ever met who really knew his Bible, really knew his faith. And so when I went after him to try to get him saved and get him out of that dead, dried up Catholic church, as I looked at it, right, um, he had some surprises for me. And it began a one year intense argument right now I, I say that a, a little bit hyperbolic because we did become friends we worked out together we were marines but man when it came to the faith and both of us were very faith-centered people boom 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 and and he was such a blessing because as i said he knew his faith he began to respond to me in ways i'd never heard before and and even more than that father he would give me books he had by the end of one year arguing with this guy. I had literally a stack of books up to my waist. You know? <laughs> he gave me Ludwig Ott's Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, James Cardinal Gibbons' Faith of Our Fathers, Augustine's Confessions, Lightfoot's Apostolic Fathers. I mean, uh, the church teaches by the Jesuit Fathers of St. Mary's. I mean, I could go through a whole litany of books and I was crazy enough to read them. I read all of them because I was going to disprove the Catholic faith. And man, I got into what I never expected, and it, it, it really added up to about a two-year intense study trying to disprove Catholicism, and that's how I became Catholic. Wow. It's, I, well, I love that journey, too, of faith, of, of coming back to the faith of your childhood, um, that, you know, it wasn't necessarily, there was nothing negative, but as you said, you know, you're leaving that, but, but so many people have that experience. They go off into the world, and they, they kind of cease the practice of it, but then to come back to it with the vengeance, you know, with, with, you know, through Absolutely. Jimmy Swaggart and people like that, I think that that's such an, uh, an amazing path and probably some, one that a lot of people can, can relate with. Absolutely. And, and when I say, you know, I don't ha have much negative, it's, it's so true because 
my experience in both the Baptist and the Assembly of God community is that these brothers and sisters don't have the fullness of the faith, to be sure. But man, do they use what they have, mm. you know, and they love Jesus. So I look at it as I didn't lose. I gained so much. Now, certainly we had to clean up the errors because there are a number of heresies and grave errors involved in Protestantism in general and in my Pentecostal community in particular. So we clean up all, all of those. But really, it's a, becoming Catholic to me, in my mind, was not what I lost. It's what I gained. I mean, the, the sacraments, the Eucharist, the greatest gift that God has ever given to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son, Jesus. Well, in the Eucharist, this is God giving us his son every day that we can consume him. He can get inside of us in a unique way that's not able to be duplicated. And in those sacred moments where we have Jesus in, as Pope St. Paul VI said, his physical reality, body, blood, soul, and divinity within us, graces are communicated in the most intimate way. What a gift. I mean, I don't understand how a Catholic can ever receive Jesus into their bodies and then not want to tell somebody about it. I mean, how can you keep that to yourself? Amen. This is the yeah. greatest gift Jesus continuously given to us daily in fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi 1, as you know, Father, 7 through 11, that throughout the world, this perfect, this pure sacrifice would be offered to God to transform the world. And that's what we have. That's that that that's me is so just powerful and beautiful as, as far as that draw. For you, what was it like to encounter a Catholic when you were a Marine of all places? Um, <laughs> yeah. a, a Catholic who actually knew their Bible and knew it well and, and maybe had insights into the Bible that you never even thought of before. I think that's one of the things that, that many people probably have experienced. If they love the Lord and they're into their Bible and they're part of their Protestant domination, maybe many Catholics they've met aren't into the Bible and don't have answers for, for all the, the why. So it just seems like a kind of a strange um, yeah. kind of foreign, you know, uh, thing put on top of, of that, that simple biblical faith that we're, we're called to. So what was that like for you? And, 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 and how, how are you seeing that maybe kind of manifest in your interactions today? Yeah, well, it was a paradigm shift for me because the Catholics I had met before didn't know their Bibles, as you mentioned. You know, generally speaking, I, I can honestly say he was the first Catholic I ever met. At least he's the only one who ever said something. Maybe I met some that knew it and didn't tell me about it, but <laughs> I really never met a Catholic who knew his Bible like this man did. And so I, I'll just give you one example. You know, when I hit him with Old Faithful, Whenever I met a Catholic, Matthew 23, 9, bam, you know, that was one of, if not the first verse I would use, where Jesus, of course, says, call no man on this earth father. You have one father, which is in heaven. I mean, in my mind, I was like, what part of no don't you understand, Catholics, right? <laughs> it's pretty it simple, was, Catholics. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And it, it really is. And, and so most of the time, you know, when not most of the time, just about all the time, when I hit Catholics with that, they were dumbfounded and you know, stammered and didn't have much, if anything, to say. But this guy immediately, and this was the amazing thing about him, he was quick on the draw. He, When I hit him with that, it was like, boy, this, this guy knows his stuff because he responded back to me and said, Tim, we believe that verse just like it's written. But did you know there's more than one verse in the Bible, Tim? Right? <laughs> no. You know, a little bit of snark there. But, you know, I, I, I'm like, okay, of, of course I know there's more than one. But he said, look, Tim, you can take a verse of scripture out of context and make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And you know that's true. Context is everything in scripture. And so we have to understand. And let me take, boy, this really ticked me off, Father. He took my Bible out of my hand. I'll never forget that because I had my Bible and we're going at. And he said, Tim, let me show you something. And he takes me in the Bible to Ephesians chapter six, verses one and two, where St. Paul quotes the fourth commandment. We all know, honor your, if we have any Protestants watching, yeah, we're one different between Catholics and Protestants. But in uh, anyway, the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother 
that your days may be prolonged on this earth. He says, Tim, look, I thought you said Jesus had called no man on this earth father. Well, look, St. Paul does right here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So why would Paul call a man on this earth? And I, in fact, lots of them. May, uh, father, if Jesus meant you can't use that word at all. Now, my response was, well, okay, that's fine. You can call a physical father, father. But what Jesus really meant is you don't mm. call spiritual leaders father. That's the context, right? And that, once again, didn't miss a beat. He said, oh, oh, okay. So you can't call spiritual leaders father. Ah, okay. Well, let's go to Luke chapter 16, verse 24. And again, he's paging through my Bible. And he goes, look at this, Tim. And here Luke Jesus <laughs> refers to Abraham as Father Abraham. Mm. And, he, and he says, Tim, would you say Abraham is a spiritual leader? And Father, I didn't have a response. I was, oh, my gosh, how do I respond to this? And he didn't let up. He said, look, Tim, let's flip a few pages here. And he went through and showed me, Father, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. St. Paul refers to Abraham as Father Abraham seven times. In 18 verses. James 2.21, St. James, Father Abraham. 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, St. John refers to the elders to whom he's writing as fathers, exhorting them to teach their spiritual sons and daughters. There it is, fathers. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 4, 14 and 15, where St. Paul says, you have 10,000 instructors in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have not many fathers. I have become your father, for I've begotten you through the gospel. It was like, Father, I had read the verses before that, after it, but for some reason, that one just didn't stick in my head as a Protestant, right? Mm -hmm. There you have Paul referring to himself as Father. And then the one that did me in, Father, was Ephesians 3.14, where St. Paul says, For this cause I bow my knee before the Father of light, from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth is derived or takes its name, right? Gets its power mm -hmm. there in the Greek text. And he says, Tim, look, here's the key. When Jesus said, call no man on this earth father, he did not mean you cannot enunciate the word father toward a human being, because if he did, he contradicted himself. And so did St. James and St. Paul, and we could go on, right? St. John and the Holy Spirit who inspired all of them, by the way. <laughs> Right. And so when he said this, I, can't, I tell you, a light bulb went in my head, went on in my head when he said this, Tim, Jesus is not condemning using the term. He's condemning the usurpation of the fatherhood of God. And that's what was happening in, especially in the first century. And not just among, you know, religious leaders who, who Jesus had to deal with, who were usurping authority that they did not have, but even the political, the Caesars, right, who were called father of the empire, and the mm -hmm. and the, the empire had to worship them as father God. I mean, wow, when he said that, you know what, Father, in my heart of hearts, I knew he was right. I never let him know it, at least not for another two years. I never let him know it. But I knew he was right. And, and you might think, well, you know, that's not a big deal, killing priest's father. Well, it was to me because it was the first time in my mind I had to acknowledge that Catholic was right and I was wrong. Now, that would launch me into a whole slew of other doctrines. But that's kind of how it went. We went from doctrine to doctrine. And he would give me reasons. He would give me books. He challenged me. And I will be forever grateful for Sergeant Matt Dula for that. Excellent. We pray for Sergeant Matt and just thank thank God for his witness. And also, too, just for other Catholics who are watching this, other people who are following their faith, what a difference it makes to actually be able to, to share it, actually be able to respond and, and out of love. I mean, uh, you never know. You never know how that's going to impact someone's life. And that's a commandment, is it? it from, from our first pope in 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts always and be ready to give everyone a reason for the hope that lies within you with meekness and with respect. I tell you, that verse really encapsulates what Matt Dula was to me. He was that faithful Catholic who was ready. And, and I'll say this as well. It's not as though he had answers all the time. There were times I would stump him because I started doing my homework. Mm. You know, I guess uh, I got to give thanks again for Matt Dula in another sense, because uh, Matt 
I would say my first encounter with him, he made me a better Protestant, <laughs> you know, yeah. because he challenged me and it forced me to begin to read. I had never read Luther in my life. I mean, we had a picture of him up in our church hall, you know, and John Calvin, you know, but I'd never read these guys. He really forced me to start asking the question, why am I Protestant? Right. And, and I started reading these guys and that was hugely important. Remember that folks in evangelization, that is often what happens. You know, mother Teresa, a father once said when her sisters and she encountered the poorest of the poor, and when they encountered her and her sisters, they would often look up and see Jesus for the first time in their lives. And they didn't necessarily know who Jesus was, hmm. but they saw love looking down at them. And what did it do? Mother said it would cause them to become a first, a better Hindu, a better Muslim, a better whoever, whatever faith they had. That's often the first step in the process of evangelization before then you see the fullness of truth, beauty, and goodness in the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. So that, that, that's what happened for you is you began to be a better uh, Protestant, a better follower of Jesus, someone more intentional about answering these questions. Where did that start to start or when did that start to lead maybe towards begin to look at the possibility of Catholicism? Because I think for a lot of people, yes. it's so foreign. It seems so far away from their experience. They didn't grow up Catholic. And it seems like such a cultural sort of thing. It'd be like, you know, talking to someone who grew up in a Polish family, like, hey, you should become Italian. You know, it's right. like, I, I, you know, that, that's not how it works, you know, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, so, so to even begin to entertain that thought, what, what were some of the things that started to, to, to happen in your mind and your heart and, and during your studies? Yeah, well, I, 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 I think, think with Matt, he was very patient mm. and he understood that it, this is going to be a process. In fact, years later, when I became Catholic, he became my sponsor when I came into the church and Matt told me he had absolutely no indications at all that he was getting through at all. He said, Tim, <laughs> you were, you were just, oh, I drive, I, I drove him nuts. Right. And so when I converted, he was the most shocked person in, in, in the room. But what Matt did is, especially in the early months, because, again, this was a year long conversation. But in the early months, I dictated where the conversation went because I had my list of things. And I think it was a blessing that Matt just kind of let me lead the conversation. And, and he played defense and he just responded. He said, Tim, if you want responses, okay, I'll give you responses as long as we can keep it respectful and, and such. <laughs> at times we didn't do very good at that, but, you know, we tried to, and he respected that. So it was a matter, Father, of going from doctrine to doctrine. And some of, some of my pet peeves, you know, like the statue thing, you know, people kneeling in front of statues and whatnot, which in my mind, this is so obviously idolatry. And then, of course, he, he would show me how, yeah, okay, Tim, Exodus chapter 20, I get what you're saying, the first commandment, thou shalt not make any graven image of any likeness of anything be that in heaven or earth or in the sea. I get that. But from a Catholic and, and I would argue biblical perspective, that's not condemning statues per se. It's condemning idolatry. And notice the last part, and thou shalt not bow down and adore them. That's idolatry, and that's obviously true, because that's Exodus 20. Just five chapters later, in Exodus 25, verse 18, God tells Moses when he's giving him personal his personal design for the Ark of the Covenant, right? Mm. Ooh, Marian implications here, but maybe later. <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant, what does he say? Thou shalt make two golden cherubim over five-foot tall angels out of beaten gold. These were huge statues over the holiest place in Israel, in Israel, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, over the Holy of Holies. Oh, my goodness. And, and then, again, we, we would go on to 1 Kings chapters 5 and 6. And Solomon is also, he built the temple that God himself sanctified and, and gave two thumbs up, right? Mm. And it was filled with images of cherubim and palm trees and palm, all sorts of stuff. And, and Matt would, would always come back to, but Tim, D, 
didn't Exodus 20 say, thou shalt not make any graven images of any likeness of anything, whether it be in heaven, huh, cherubim, on the earth, pomegranates, palm trees, under the sea. There were fish as well. So it's obvious that it's not condemning statues, it's condemning idolatry. And that is the key. See, Father, it was these little nuances that my buddy brought to me that showed me, Tim, there are responses. What, what we need to do, I think, Father, is we Catholics need to get, one of the things I love about the ecumenical movement, and sure, in some circles it gets hijacked, but the, generally speaking, the, the ecumenism that gets together, we, we all need to get outside of our bubbles and listen to each other. Instead of staying in our churches and preaching how bad the other side is, right? Mm. Talk about it. Get together. I challenge folks, both Catholic and Protestant, to the St. Thomas Aquinas approach. And what do I mean by that? If you look at the Summa Theologiae, one of the greatest works of all time, theologically speaking, and it was to beginners, right, Father? Uh, you know, but anyway, such a, how does Thomas begin every question? But he, he puts up the objections first. He shows the other side. And in fact, he presents the other side so well that at times you think, oh, my God, that sounds true. How is he going to debunk this? And mm. then he does. And so I challenge folks all the time on both sides. Look, you need to listen. Learn what Luther taught. Learn what, if you really want to engage in apologetics and evangelization, you know, take some time. Learn a little bit about what Islam teaches. If you're going to talk to Muslims, learn what a Protestant teaches if you're going to talk to them. And I'll tell you, that transforms everything. When you hear the folk on the other side and they're understanding you, that's meaningful. And then they point out, but Tim, let me show you the truth of the matter. And all of a sudden, that's why I use the, the term, Father, paradigm shift. Mm. And it wasn't just one paradigm shift. It was a multitude, well, at least manifold over that, that year. It became, I would hit him like with statues or praying to saints or real presence, papal and the, the ones that were the most obviously wrong in my mind were the ones I hit him with first. And so when he answered those, and like with the statues, and all of a sudden I see, oh my goodness. And I'll never forget this too. In, in Deuteronomy chapter four, verses 15 and 16, God actually gives the reason why he did not allow the Israelites to make a statue of him. And why does he say that to Moses? He says, because I did not take a form when I led you out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. So you don't make any forms of me or images of me. And I'm like, oh my goodness. When he shared that with me, that what does uh, Colossians chapter one, verse 15, Hebrews chapter one, verse three, but especially Colossians 1, 15, what does it say about Jesus? He is the icon of the father, right? Mm -hmm. And Philippians chapter two, verse five, though he was in the form of God, he thought not his equality with God, not something to be clasped or clung to, but he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a slave. Oh my, that was, one, again, another of those paradigm shifts where I see, yes, he opened a whole new world of, of iconography and statuary and images because God has taken a form now. Look, Father, you're not going to learn this in Baptist, in Baptist Sunday school. You're not going to learn this in the Assemblies of God from Jimmy Swagger. We as Catholics have these answers. But the problem is we don't get out of our bubbles and sit down and talk with folks. And, and I'll tell you, that's what happened with me and Matt. Matt would tell you if he was sitting here right now, he learned a ton about Protestantism over, over those two years. And, and as you know, I learned a ton about Catholicism. That's beautiful. Uh, uh, just uh, for you beginning to get to that point, because I think it's probably where a lot of people are, they kind of uh, maybe reach, reach the point of beginning to ask questions, but it's more so, where is that in the Bible? And that, that kind of is, is and I, I encounter that um, consistently, particularly when we we, we begin with our programs and other things. We just had a, a dear friend of mine who's a, a Baptist minister here in town. 
We had yeah. him on um, uh, last month, actually. Very fruitful dialogue, basically just stating our faith, you know, what we believe about key aspects of, of, of Christianity. Yeah. Um, the response, though, whenever something comes up is always, well, show me chapter and verse where, where that is in the Bible. Like yeah. for you, where was there, a, was there a shift where you kind of, you need, yeah. you need to be able to back things up biblically. And I think that's important. And people, you know, when they point point out what the, the strangeness of Catholicism or things, whether it's Mary or the saints or the Pope or the Eucharist or the sacraments. Um, yes. But just that, that question and, and topic of, of where is that in the Bible? And, and, and really, when you start to dig into it, is that enough to, to right. really limit ourselves there? Um, maybe right. not, maybe limits the wrong word, or, or is there more that God wants to, wants to do in, 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 in following? Yeah. You know, and I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what my experience was with Matt and I've used it ever since, <laughs> you know, and here uh, Matt was a guy, no college degree. He was just a good Marine high school diploma, but from a wonderful Catholic family, very well read Opus Dei. He and his eight, uh, well, let's seven brothers and sisters. There was eight total, all Opus Dei school, rock solid, just well read. But what he would do, and, and I remember this conversation, he challenged me on that point. Where does the Bible say everything has to be in the Bible? Hmm. Right. And of course, my response was predictable. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. The reproof, correction, instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What else do you need, pal? Right. And he said, well, well, Tim. The only thing that text tells you is that scripture is crucial. It's important. It never says that's all you need. In fact, if you're going to use that kind of exegesis here in 2 Timothy 3.16, what do you do with James chapter 1, verse 4? Right? Where St. James says, let patience have its perfect work, that the, the, a man may be perfect, entire, and lacking in nothing. Luther got it wrong. He shouldn't have taught sola scriptura. He should have taught sola paciencia because patience is all you need. See, but the bottom line is, as he explained, sola scriptura is wrong and so would sola paciencia be wrong. What these texts are both talking about are the importance of patience and scripture. But the word alone is nowhere to be found here. And then, of course, he challenged me with particulars. For example, Tim, how do you know that Mark and Luke, who were not apostles, how do you know they could write scripture? Who are these guys to write sacred scripture and you claim it to be the inspired word of God? They're not even apostles. And guess what, Father? I had no answer. Nowhere does the scripture say a non-apostle can write scripture, right? I mean, and it was perhaps the, the biggest one, and there were many, was what about the books of the Bible themselves? How do you know, for example, that Hebrews is the inspired word of God when many of the early fathers didn't accept it? Eusebius of Caesarea called it a disputed writing. And we could go on to Revelation, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and other books were deemed either shaky or outright rejected by many, like the book of Revelation. And then you had other books like the, the song uh, of the... Um, Shepherd of uh, Hermes, uh, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Letter of Clement, uh, you know, to the Corinthians. There were numerous books that were accepted as inspired by some of the early churches as well as fathers. Where do you go, Tim, in the Bible to determine whether Clement is inspired or not? These questions, the canon of Scripture, and we could go on. He, I'm telling you, Father, nobody had done this. To me before. Nobody had challenged me like this. I had to challenge myself. I started reading R.C. Sproul. I started reading Dr. Walter Martin. I started reading some of the early Protestant reformers. And you find even among them, there's no one answer to this question. You have multiple answers. Whereas Luther, for example, accepted that the Catholic Church gave us the Bible. Hmm. Uh, Calvin taught they're self-authenticating, which Luther rejected. Or what do you mean self-authenticating? That makes no sense. You can't go to a claim inspired text and say, well, it's inspired because it says so. That is absurd. That's a logical fallacy of circular reasoning. So what happens is here, he's blowing my mind, challenging the foundation of my 
uh, Protestantism, sola scriptura. But then what he would do is pivot. And he'd say, but you, you know what, Tim? I mean, I think you're clearly wrong here. Clearly, scripture reveals that there's something else beyond the written word of God, but the oral tradition, that is the oral word of God. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, where St. Paul says, I, I give thanks concerning the Thessalonians to whom he had spoken with, that when we were among you, he said, you received our words, not as the words of men, but as they are in truth, the word of God. Before anything was written whatsoever, the spoken word of the apostle is the word of God. So the word of God comes to us, not just in written form, but in the oral form. And of course, when there are disagreements, and he pivoted beautifully to this, to say, how did Jesus design the church to be able to deal with questions? Mm. Like whether Clement should be in the Bible um, or not, and whether the book of Revelation should be in the Bible or not, because you can't go to the Bible to get the answer. Well, Jesus has already set it up. In Matthew 18, 15 through 18, as you know, Father, Jesus says, if your brother offends against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And by the way, there is no greater offense than accusing someone of heresy, mm. right? So if your brother offends, what do you do? You go to your brother, you try to settle it. But he says, if you can't, you take one or two with you that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. But if he will not even hear them, you tell it to the church. Notice, not the Bible, the church. And the one who fails to hear the church is to be as a heathen and a publican. Why? For whatever, this is key, for whatever you, plural, that is the church, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There, Jesus gives us the answer. You go to the church. What church? Well, there was no Protestant church until the 16th century. Did not exist. And Tim, I challenge you. You need to find out what that church is. And guess what? I know what it is. It is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That kind of led into a discussion of the fathers. But more importantly, Father, I think that one of the things I remember that was so awesome about Matt when he blew my, basically my authority away, he said, but you know what, Tim, I have no problem with having a, con a, 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 a sort of a conversation and I'll stick to scripture. And, you, you know, if you want to talk scripture, let's talk scripture. And that blew my mind because he's saying, even though scripture really is inadequate to handle all and, and to be able to give answers that he knew that he could defend every tenet of the Catholic faith because there's nothing in scripture that contradicts anything concerning our Catholic faith, but there's tons in it that contradict Protestantism. So he had no problem sticking to scripture for a while until then Matt could say, do you see why, Tim, we need tradition? We need magisterium as well. I mean, it's an interesting approach. You don't have to take that approach. But that was kind of his approach, and it worked on this knucklehead. That's pretty. That's pretty outstanding. Matt, Matt did a, an amazing job. He's given us a master class in, uh, <laughs> in, in, in sharing our faith. Um, well, um, I want to ask you a couple more questions about some other aspects of, of 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 what that transition looks like for someone who goes from the Bible alone to the 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 Word of God is revealed. You know, it's Jesus Christ who gives us Scripture and tradition and the Church as that yeah. foundation. But we're going to take a quick break. Um, and we'll be right back on Catholic in America. Hey guys, thanks for checking out Catholic in America. I'm Father Michael Nixon, and I like to party. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Father Tom Dillon, uh, priest here in the Diocese of Pensacola, Tallahassee. I think I have the longest hair in the, probably the state, and uh, I too like to party. I like whiskey and cigars. Father Doug Martin. I'm also a priest here in the Diocese of Pensacola, Tallahassee, and I'm married and roll tide. Oh my goodness. Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> I was okay with the being married part. <laughs> That's my thing. In Catholic in America, we engage the intersection between faith and culture. Tune in every week because no topic is out of bounds. We want to thank you so much for supporting this show by watching it, by liking, sharing, and subscribing. How else can they support the show? You can also become a patron on Patreon and support us financially. 
So if you support us, there's all kinds of swag. There's T-shirts, there's coffee mugs, or maybe bumper stickers. I don't know. Maybe we could come up with a wig from Father Tom. <laughs> Father Tom wig would go, go a long way. So thanks for your support. God bless y'all. And check us out next time on Catholic in America. Welcome back to Catholic in America. I'm joined today by by Tim Staples, who's sharing his his journey um, from Protestantism to Catholicism, and we we talked a little bit about the the insufficiency of sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Um, but I want to thank everyone who's watching, especially those who are supporting us on Patreon, those who uh, support the work we do we do here at Catholic in America, Saint Dominic Media. We can't do it without your help. So thank you so much. And continue to pray, pray with and for us. So, so Tim, um, that that's uh, looking at and recognizing that sola scriptura, in a sense, can't sustain itself um, because yes. the, you know the, there's no table of contents that's that <laughs> that, that the Bible gives us. Um, this also brings the other sola, which is sola fide, that faith alone, and that, that's something that that obviously people uh, when they see Catholics, they see us relying on works. We're going to work our way into heaven, and it's all about just faith, professing faith in Jesus Christ. So, what, what was kind of your experience of of grappling with that? Yeah, you know, I can tell you that um, when Matt answered me on things like, you know, the call no man father and the statues, and we go into praying to saints, he really made just such compelling arguments from the Bible that in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, the Catholics got lucky on a, on a few of these. Mm. But then I would go to the big guns. And, you know, when he destroyed my position on authority, that was a devastating blow and i can remember thinking in my mind that man that would be great if we really did have a church that could declare what the bible means because look at protestantism we have literally tens of thousands of denominations teaching every kind of inanity you can imagine and there's nobody that can say thus saith the lord in my mind i'm thinking you know that would be awesome problems with so many things and that's why i think it was such a blessing that we had this year-long conversation because i would literally go from doctrine to doctrine and and he didn't know this but in my mind i'm thinking okay i can give him a few of those lesser important things but what about the doctrine upon which luther says the church rises or falls right rc sproul the, the late great dr rc sproul who i love just a masterful teacher he's a calvinist um, who taught that the Catholic Church, and again, Protestants will disagree on this as well, he taught the Catholic Church was the church up until the 16th century. You know, he, he wasn't one of these trail, trail of blood theorists, you know, I mean, he, he taught that, but they missed it on justification and lost their authority. I mean, mm. incredible, right? So in my mind, I'm thinking, let's get to this doctrine, and I'll never forget how the conversation went. And I'm going to kind of encapsulate it because it did go on for, for, for quite a while. But in a nutshell, I can remember certain moments where, for example, you know, I would hit him with uh, the famous Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, <laughs> lest any man should boast, right? Oh my goodness, how can it be any more plain? And he responded by pointing out, Tim, if you look at the context of Ephesians 2, I think we can agree that mm. St. Paul here is talking about the initial grace of salvation that we receive. Now, you believe when you confess faith. I believe it's faith and baptism uh, that initiates us into Jesus Christ. And I have biblical backup for that. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. You were buried together with him through baptism so that just as Christ is raised in newness of life, we may walk in newness of life. So, but bottom line is, I think we can agree that he's talking about the initial grace here. And he shows me the context. The first four verses, for example, St. Paul is talking to the Ephesians. He says, you who were once aliens, right, alienated from God, you were and more than just alienated. He said, you were by nature, look at verse three, children of wrath, mm. right? That doesn't sound like Christians to me, Father, right? But then there's the change, for by grace you have been saved, right? And then at, at verse 10, after he says, for by grace you've been saved, not, not of yourself, God, let's say, at verse 10, 
for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So clearly this is talking about the initial grace of salvation. And Father, in my mind, once again, I had to say, well, yeah, it does look like that is the context, but I'm just mm -hmm. listening. And he says, Tim, the Catholic Church acknowledges, number one, and the, this was a mind blower again, Father. When he showed me uh, how the Catholic Church teaches the initial grace of justification, and by the way, it's in the Catechism section 2008 to 2010, if anybody wants to look it up, the initial grace of salvation justification is entirely unmerited. We can do nothing to merit the gift of faith. And in fact, the Catholic Church teaches you can do nothing to merit grace itself. Mm -hmm. As Romans 11 verse 6 says, if it is of works, then grace is no longer grace. We agree with that as Catholics. I, Father, I had never heard that in my life. I was operating under the same error of Martin Luther himself, who ta taught that, that the Catholic Church is Pelagian, or at least semi-Pelagian. And, and Matt shows me this is not, the Catholic Church condemned Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism way back in the 5th century and 6th centuries. So, oh my gosh, once again, paradigm shift. The initial grace of salvation, and, and again, grace itself is absolutely unmerited. It is the gift of God, not of works. But Tim, once we enter into Jesus Christ, it is a different world. We are empowered to be able. No one can merit anything until they enter into Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we have to cooperate mm. with God if you're an adult and you haven't been baptized, you must cooperate with grace and you can reject it. Sorry, Calvin and Luther were wrong on that. You, you can reject that prompting of the Holy Spirit to bring you to faith. But what if you cooperate, you don't merit. But once you enter into Christ, then you're empowered to merit. That was a life changing concept that I had never heard before, Father. Because all of my presentations against Catholicism were dead wrong on that point. I taught you had to work your way to heaven in Catholicism, which is which is false. But what it does, what what the church does teach is once you enter into Christ, absolutely you better get working or you're not going to heaven. You've got to cooperate with God's grace in order to maintain your union with God. And then he takes me all over the New Testament. I'll just do three here real quick. <laughs> Tim, look, let's go to Romans 2, verses 6 and 7. God will reward each man according to his works. To him who continues in good works, his reward shall be glory, incorruption, and eternal life. Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he reap. If a man continues to sow to the spirit, he shall from the spirit or of the spirit reap everlasting life. If he continues to sow to the flesh, he shall of the flesh reap death. Let us not grow weary. Look at verse nine. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, mm -hmm. knowing we shall re reap the reward if we faint not. I mean, and, and I, I don't want to take too long on this point, but the point is he took me to lots more verses that showed me that once you enter into Christ and, and here uh, another paradigm shift, I'm using this word a lot, but trust me, in my process of conversion, there were so many mind blowing moments where I'm going, oh my gosh, they're right again. You know, I, I mean, and the Bible really is quite plain on, on a number of these things, but Again, when it comes to the, the necessity of that cooperation of good works, I remember 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, where St. John says, if we walk in the light, right? Isn't walking something we have to do, Father? I think mm -hmm. so. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, that's us with God, and the blood of Jesus Christ continues to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not a one-time deal when you accept Jesus. As John Calvin taught, and all your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. John says it's an ongoing reality. It's walking in grace. This is why Paul would say 
uh, in where, where is that? Acts chapter 13, verse 43. He exhorts the people, I believe he's in Antioch, uh, to continue in the grace of God. This is why Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 18, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We grow in grace. We grow in justice. We walk with, and then notice in verse 8, why? Because if we walk in the light, he continues to cleanse us. But in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. So notice the sins aren't already forgiven. We have to walk. We have to confess. We have to continue in the grace mm. of God. And that's when James 2.24 made sense to me. When he hit me with this and he said, Tim, let me just put it this way. I'm not asking you to become Catholic. At least not right now. I'm not asking you to become, but, but just consider how maybe we Catholics just might have a point in rejecting justification by faith alone. When the only place in the entire Bible the words faith alone are found, the words not by are right in front of them. In James 2.24, we see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Tim, you told me you believed in sola scriptura. You don't need a magisterium. You don't need tradition. All you need is scripture. Can you honestly look me in the eye? He said this to me. Can you look in the, me in the eye and honestly say that you are going to pick up a Bible, which is all you need, and you're going to read. We see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. You're going to close your Bible and say, boy, we must be justified by faith alone because the Bible says we're justified by works and not by faith alone. Do you honestly believe that? Or is it possible? I'm just saying, is it possible you have accepted some traditions of men that have ended up nullifying the word of God? I'm just asking. Man, I couldn't sleep. I was like, th those words would reverberate in my head. I'm serious. There were times I couldn't sleep. I would get up and I'd have to get a book, start reading uh, some Protestant apologists or, or whatever to try to get an answer. And this guy was killing me. But actually, he was bringing the light and life of the word of God. I love it. That's, that's, that's so beautiful. Just, I think, too. Hopefully, from people hearing just your passion, your fire, and your love for Scripture, and your love for, for for the Bible, your love for the Church, your love for Jesus, that helps them to see that that becoming Catholic has made you fall deeper in love with the Bible and deeper in love with Scripture, and in a sense, be able to read it in in four D instead of just you know as as a two dimensional reality. Absolutely, and oh, we know what it means, Father. Yeah, you know there what? Oh boy, how shall I say this? You know, as a, a Protestant lifelong, there's this sense in which you just kind of know that we can't know. You know, I mean, with it's kind of an irony. We were taught from the time we were kids, you know, you can know you have salvation, you accept Jesus, and you know, you know, you know. But we didn't have any way to really know that our doctrines were true. Because everybody claimed to be quoting the scriptures, and yet you had groups, Calvinists disagreeing with the Arminians and the Lutherans. I mean, they all have their own thing and the Wesleyans and then all the different derivatives, Church of Christ and the other, and they all have different. So what, what happens, Father? And those of you that are Protestant, think about this, how that you kind of come to accept, well, it doesn't matter really that we disagree on this, 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 and this, and you reach a point where what matters? What doctrine? I mean, you go from the 39 articles of the Anglicans, right? Who said there's 39? Why not 40? Why not you know, 37? What about? But then you go down to the, the, the 16 fundamentals of the fundamentalists, right? Of the late 19th century. Of the, uh, no, actually, it was the 12 fundamentals. It was the 16 tenets of the Assemblies of God that I had to accept when, when I, I was in the, the assemblies, or the five fundamentals of the evangelicals. I mean, it's been whittled down now where you have some communities where you basically don't have to believe anything. Look at the United Church of Christ. What do they believe anymore, mm -hmm. right? And so it, it, it was such it was strange because there, there was a certain sort of comfort in that I'm in charge. 
You know, I have to determine if my pastor is right, if Calvin's right, Luther's right. And then as I start reading Catholics, whether Thomas Aquinas is right or Augustine's right, mm. and I'm in the driver's seat, you know, there is a certain man, American ring to that, right? <laughs> this individualistic, <laughs> I know, but man, then you start to see who am I? Who am I to be correcting all of the, and is this the way God established his church? So that we all have to correct Thomas Aquinas and Augustine and Calvin and Luther and Wesley and Knox and Zwingli. I mean, really? So when I came to see this reality of the authority of the church, there was a massive liberation. There's a, there's a, a humiliation that happens because you have to humble yourself mm. and acknowledge there's somebody outside of me <laughs> who can tell me thus saith God. And that's a hard thing to do, Father. But at the same time, when you do it, it is absolutely liberating because now it was like an avalanche of peace. Now I know what the scripture means concerning all of the most important doctrines of the faith. Wow, we don't have to in every household, in every generation, reinvent the wheel, go into scripture and see if the Trinity is true or not. Mm. We know it's true because thus saith God. What a gift that liberated me personally. And I'd like to invite anybody watching or listening, you can talk to me, talk to Father. Uh, let me challenge you to dive in and examine. And see whether the things I am saying right now are true. I double dare you. I love it. Well, Tim Staples, um, you are, are just an, an awesome evangelist, someone who, who, who just, just shares, effusive with love of God and love of scripture and with uh, just everything God's done in your life. And I, I'm, we're really grateful uh, for, for you for sharing that with us. How can people find you in the work that you're doing uh, yeah. online? Well, Man, we're hard to find at Catholic Answers. You know, you got to go to Catholic.com. Nice. I know that's hard to remember, <laughs> but seriously, check out Catholic.com. We have literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of free pages of information for you there to download. We have stuff on just about everything. We're working at getting stuff on everything. We may never get there, but we're trying. And we're trying to get there to answer your questions. And we do it with simple Catholic answers, right? We, we're low on the opinions, even though, as my old boss, Carl Keating, used to say, he didn't mind us giving opinions, but say it's an opinion. Nice. Right? Yeah. Because people don't want your opinions. Uh, they'll hear them, but they want Catholic answers. And that's what we do at Catholic.com. And check out as well, timstaples.com. That's my own website. And if you want to contact us, we're easy to find all the apologists here at Catholic Answers, again, at Catholic.com. And y'all are doing such such amazing work. And I, I really just encourage anyone who's who's maybe challenged by anything that you heard today to, to check that out, to, to dig deeper. It'll make you a better Baptist or uh, some of God or evangelical, hopefully a better person, and definitely uh, open you up to the fullness of the faith that God has for us. So, Tim, thank you so much for joining us today for all the great work you and Catholic Answers does. Thank you guys for, for, for watching uh, Catholic in America today. Make sure you like, share, and subscribe. Make sure you tune into all the great stuff we have coming, and uh, we'll see you next time. God bless. Mm -hmm.